Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. The kitchen of a busy restaurant can be a chaotic, frantic environment, but the best chefs create a kind of personal eye in the storm from which they can efficiently craft meal after meal without ever moving their feet. The system they use to do this is called mise en place, a French word that means to put in place and signifies an entire lifestyle of readiness and engagement. My guest today spent years interviewing over 100 chefs and other culinary professionals about the mise en place philosophy, and then translated it into a system that can be used outside the kitchen in a book called Everything in Its Place, The Power of mise en place to organize your life, work, and mind. His name is Dan Charnas, and we begin a conversation with how Dan, a writer, realized that mise en place was something that could be used by everyone in the system's three general principles and 10 tools. We then unpack some of those tools, both in how they're used by cooks in the kitchen and how they can be applied by regular folks at home and in the office. We begin with the importance of squaring your checklist with your calendar and the one organizing process Dan most recommends, something called the 30-minute mise. We then discuss how to arrange your physical working space for greater efficiency and the importance of working clean. From there, Dan explains what he thinks Stephen Covey's famous idea of putting first things first doesn't take into consideration and why it's important to understand the difference between what Dan calls process time and immersive time. At the end of our conversation, we discuss the tension between perfection and delivery, the way call and call back communication system used in kitchens creates teamwork and respect, and the fact that the success of any organization system rests on a daily commitment. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash work clean. All right, Dan Charnas, welcome to the show. Thank you. So you got a new book out, Everything in Its Place, The Power of, I'm going to see if I get this right, Mise en Place. That's right. To organize your life, work, and mind. So Mise en Place is this concept, we're going to dig deep into it, but it's a concept from the world of cooking, from chefs. How did you make the connection that Mise en Place, it's a, it's a philosophy of work that chefs have, how did you make the connection that, hey, maybe regular people can take something from this to learn how to be more productive and organized? That's a great question. It happened gradually as this sort of new breed of nonfiction started to come out in the late 90s, early 2000s, the chef narrative, right? Not a cookbook written by a chef, but literally stories about the lives of chefs, the personal and professional lives of chefs. So Michael Ruman, a journalist from Cleveland, wrote this amazing book about going to the Culinary Institute of America to become a chef called The Making of a Chef. Uh, he wrote that in the late 90s, I believe. And that was followed by uh, Anthony Bourdain's famous you know, first nonfiction work, Kitchen Confidential. And central to both of these incredible books was this idea of mise en place, right? This, this, this code by which cooks and chefs lived. And what's really interesting is that the lives of chefs and cooks can be pretty crazy, right? You know, we're talking about people who sort of view themselves as pirates, modern day, you know, outlaws and and brigands toiling away in these really hot kitchens away from the prying eyes of the public. And yet in the midst of all of this you know, revelry and sometimes uh, inappropriate and drunken behavior, there's this eye of the storm that's super, super calm called mise en place, this code of behavior that enables these folks to do enormous amounts of work and create enormous amounts of product and be enormously efficient all without moving their feet. And so as I transitioned into some corporate jobs in the early 2000s and started to work 
in places that were much more stiff and rigid and, you know, corporate than I had ever worked before. You know, I had become a, a vice president at Warner Brothers in my 20s and, you know, had to learn on the fly doing this kind of stuff. I began to become a little jealous, a little envious of that lifestyle, that, that idea that we have sort of a shared code, a shared idea of how to be efficient and not wasteful. Because the one thing about working in corporate America is that although there are certainly talk of efficiency and productivity, there's just enormous amounts of waste in corporate America. And so I began to look for ways myself, just personally, to incorporate some of those ideas into my life. And then a few years later, well, much later, really, after I published my first book, which was a, a business history of hip hop, I began to get the idea that maybe there wasn't a book written on Mise en Place. Maybe I could write that book. That's where this all started. Well, so let's talk about mise en place. Is it a is it a like a, a codified system of rules? Is it a philosophy? Is it both? Like, I mean, what are the big picture principles of it? All right. Well, it, uh, to answer your question, it wasn't codified, and that's one of the reasons that I wrote the book. There were certain ideas that were floating around, but it had never been codified. So, what I did over the course of two years, going in and out of professional kitchens and culinary schools talking to chefs and cooks, professional organizers, you know, and sort of restaurateurs, I came up with sort of three general principles and 10 ingredients or tools that make up this, this system of mise en place. So the principles first, they are preparation, process, and presence. Right? So what mise en place, which, and let's talk about that term, right? Because we haven't it's it's a very it's a very strange term to us if we don't speak French. Mise en place literally means in French to put in place. If French folks hear this, it just means to get ready, like your your state of readiness. What do you need to put in place in order to be successful? For a cook, that means gathering all your ingredients and tools in one place, already prepared, with a sense of organization that allow you to keep cooking you know, these same dishes over and over and over again without moving your feet. And so that life of mise en place requires a commitment to planning every day, a commitment to following process, that there are things that work, to not rebel against process, things like checklists, very important. And it's funny, like the people who really take their work seriously because lives are at stake, whether it's, you know, making sure that food is clean or making sure that an airplane gets to its destination safely or that a patient on the operating table makes it off of the operating table. Doctors, chefs, airline pilots all work from checklists. They all work with process. They don't rebel from process. And then finally, this idea of being present. You can't phone it in so to speak. You, you always have to be aware. Situational awareness is really part of the mise en place lifestyle. So those are the three general principles, planning, process, and presence. But then I broke it down to like 10 ingredients or strategies, things that cooks use over and over again to you know get through their day. The first is making a plan, literally making that, that checklist and also squaring it 
with the calendar, which we can talk about it. Arranging their spaces and perfecting their movements is a second one. The third one is cleaning as you go. The fourth and the fifth are making first moves and finishing actions, you know, how to start and how to finish. The sixth one is slowing down to speed up, this kind of counterintuitive way of thinking about how you deal with your emotions when things are really piling up on you. Then the next couple are sort of about communications, open ears and eyes, call and call back, and inspecting and correcting the idea of learning how to edit and and be edited, learning how to supervise and to be supervised. And then the, the final of the 10 ingredients is what chefs call total utilization, which is this idea that nothing be wasted, no resource, no moment, no ingredient, no person be wasted, no space be wasted, right? That's the, that is the end goal of mise en place. And it, when you understand what the the kitchen business is like, the restaurant business, like you understand like why a chef would have to develop this, this code because you, you don't have margin to waste. Like you don't have, like there's a tight deadline. You have like that night, you have to get as many meals out as possible. You can't waste any ingredients because any wasted plate, that's money down the drain or down in the, in the garbage can. So they have to, like, they have to be as efficient as possible. Yeah, that's brilliant. I mean, that's a, it's a great observation. And you, you know, imagine arriving to a restaurant for your six o'clock reservation and the host says, I'm sorry, um, we're just not ready to open yet. Chef's running a little behind. You know, that might be fine for the doctor's office. And it's fine maybe if we're expecting to launch our uh, 2.0 software on October 1st and it ends up getting pushed back to October 15th. But that doesn't work in the restaurant business. And frankly, that's why this stuff finally only exists in the oral tradition of restaurants, of professional food service, because they're ruled by the clock. And we are not. We function more according to the calendar. Things are more sort of movable for us. And as a result, that is where we get lazy and wasteful. And so, and and I just have to say, uh, I'm not a professional cook, nor have I ever cooked professionally at all. I approach this entire project simply as a journalist, interviewing essentially uh, more than 100 people over the course of uh, several years to, to try to figure out what this thing was and how we could take it out of the kitchen into the office. And what's so amazing, dude, is that even chefs didn't think about it this way. Most of the folks that I talked to, I mean, some of the chefs that I talked to had the messiest offices you've ever seen. <laughs> like their kitchen is spotless. But you go back to their workspace, you know, and they're you can't even find their computer keyboard because there's just stuff all on, on top of it, right? So that there was a leap that hadn't been made that, yeah, there were some things of value that we could take from the professional kitchen and move into the professional office. And I, I think you made this point in the book. What's unique about chefs and the culinary arts, they're actually taught how to work. Office workers, you're never taught like how to be efficient in the office. Like you're taught, you know, sort of some basic rudimentaries, but then you're, it's up to you to figure out how to develop systems for, for your work. And I think that's, it's kind of weird when you think about it. It's amazing to me. I mean, but it's also, you know, we all, many of us enter relationships and marriages and there's very little right. education about how to be successful in a relationship, right? So it's almost like the most basic things about living and survival aren't really taught. The 
it's interesting though that that two places that this stuff really is taught are the military and the culinary. They have you know very much the idea of preparation and process and presence for everything. But no, when I went to journalism school, I was, I mean, I was taught a little bit about how to report, but I certainly wasn't taught how to manage my work, how to manage my day. I didn't know anything about squaring my list with the calendar. And as a result, we have a generation of generations of people running around making lists without understanding that a list is not how you actually get things done. All right, so let's dig into some of these ingredients. Maybe we can uh, change that a bit with this episode. So let's talk about that first ingredient, which is the idea of planning. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's like the first thing that, you, that chefs are taught when they go to culinary school. They, they're given a piece of paper and they're told that you got to make a timeline yep. for the night. So how do they go about planning? So, that, so I mean, again, we got to think about what's the, uh, the problem the chef's facing here. They have a, a deadline, a tight deadline. They've got to make lots of different meals for lots of different people, and there's going to be setbacks. How do they plan for all that? Well, let's, let's think about this backwards, right? Let's think about it from, from your perspective and my perspective. At the start of our day, if we're, we consider ourselves industrious, we might make ourselves a list, a checklist. You know, sometimes I'll have 10, 15 items of things that I would like to do that day and want to get done. And, you know, maybe I'll get three or four of them done and I'll end up feeling horrible <laughs> about myself. Oh my God, how much stuff I have to do. And then that gets pushed to the next day and you make a next and a list for the next day. And there's now 20 things to do. And maybe you get four or five done. That's no way to live. And the reason that we end up that way is that we never do the essential second step of squaring our lists, our checklists with our calendar, because each one of those things takes time and the time's got to come from somewhere. So I think of it also this way. The list is a function and a product of the mind, but the calendar is a tool that puts our body in a place in time. So Squaring your list with a calendar means you're going to take what you think you want to do, and now you have to square it with your body in a place and time. How much time do I need to actually write that email? You might be thinking you can do it in 10 minutes, but realistically, you probably need to give yourself some immersive time to write that very important email that you've been wanting to write. 30 minutes, you're going to have to block that out. I'm a college professor right now, and I teach college freshmen, you know, coming in from high school. And one of the first things that I try to get them to do, and I have to say, I'm not always successful, but I try, I say, listen, there's seven or eight hours of coursework, homework that you need to do every week. If you don't block out that time on the calendar, it won't get done. Not doing that is essentially magical thinking. You have to block that time out on your calendar and show up for yourself like you would show up for a job interview or somebody important. That's how we need to relate to squaring our tasks with the calendar. And that's what chefs do every day at the Culinary Institute. They literally have a form where on the left side of the sheet of paper, there's a list of things to do. And on the right side of the sheet of paper is a timeline. How much time do I need to chop those vegetables? How much time do I need for that braise? And what can I be doing while the food is braising to put myself in a position to deliver at precisely six o'clock or whenever service is? 
And so it sounds like if it's not on the calendar, it's not going to happen. That's exactly right. If it ain't on the calendar, chances are it's not getting done. And also squaring your list with the calendar forces you to make choices. And I think we run from choice on a daily basis. Like, oh, how can I? But I've got to do that today. So you just don't plan. And then your day makes the decision for you, right? The thing that doesn't get done, you don't control that. The calendar controls that now because you didn't put it down. There are things that I now make sure, because I do this every day, I have to say no to things every day. I have to be realistic about when I can deliver things. But on the other end, that makes me not less reliable, but more reliable because I have a sense of when I will be completing things. Now, listen, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. And there's a lot of wishful thinking that goes on in my life, especially as an author of very long books that have a lot of moving parts and I have to do lots of interviews for. But I will say that my mise en place, my personal mise en place, helps me stay sane amid all of this. I just know that if I, if I rely on my mise en place, everything else will fall into place. And then so, I mean, it sounds like what you can do is like just begin your day with a a set, like we're just going to plan out your day or it can be the night before, right? Here, and you, and it's, you have your list, but then you have to make sure everything on your list is on the calendar because that keeps you honest. Well, that is essentially at the core of the one, one process that I recommend everybody who reads this book do. The book was originally called Work Clean. When it came out in paperback, we changed the title to Everything in Its Place. But the ritual, the daily ritual is the 30-minute mise, M-E-E-Z-E, And this mise consists of several steps. And the steps are essentially cleaning your tools, right? Making sure that the stuff from the previous day is accounted for. And then really planning your day, squaring your list with the calendar. And then getting your materials together for whatever you need for the day. Preparation, you know, things that you might need, tools that you might need for a meeting, files, things like that. So, the book really goes deeply into how that daily mise is done and you keep it to a tight 30 minutes. That's also important because if you're planning more than 30 minutes a day, you're planning wrong. It's not planning. It's actually, you're, you're putting work into your planning cycle. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. And now back to the show. Well, another part of the getting prepared for Chef Does is actually like putting things in its place, like literally mise en place. Like they they get an area in the kitchen and they're never going to leave that spot for the next, for So I mean, and and also they're very meticulous about how they arrange things in front of them so that they're as efficient as possible. Can you kind of walk us through sort of a general, what that might look like for a chef? Even for your desk, how many of us, for those of us who have landlines at our desk, you know, where's your phone? Are you crossing your arm over your body to get to that phone and, and dial? You know, where, where are the things that you normally grab? If you, write with your, if you write with your right hand, are your pens on the left side of the desk? Right? Just little things, just looking, even your virtual areas on your computer, where are things that you use where they're easy to use? You want what chefs try to do. And I say chefs and cooks sort of synonymously, right? Chef is just means chief. It's just a leader of cooks, the lead cook. They try to 
arrange spaces and perfect movements all to reduce friction. And when you reduce friction, you essentially speed things up, make them more efficient, reduce abrasion, right? And you could abrade your, you know, your, your, your mood if you're just constantly do, you know, doing something that is giving you some sort of distress. I mean, it even could be like, I don't know, an air conditioner or a fan that's blowing on you the entire time. Like maybe turn it a little bit so that you have less friction, less, less bumping up against things and more of a, you know, one of the chefs that I interviewed, he had this phrase, oil on glass. That's how we want this to be for us, this service. We want our workday to be like oil on glass, that smooth. Another uh, idea you mentioned earlier, the books was really called Work Clean. But chefs, that's another, that's another part of mise en place is like they literally, like not only work clean, not only it, it means like making sure you, you set up your work so that you can be frictionless, but it also like they literally, they're cleaning all the time. What's going on? Why do they, why do they clean while they work? We'll approach it from the chef's perspective and then from our perspective, right? So, so the, re- the reason that chefs keep clean always and have to keep things you know, separate in their own little boxes and in the right place always is that if they don't, people can die. Simple as that. The whole restaurant can get shut down. A health inspector comes in there. You can't cut chicken on a cutting board and then not sterilize that cutting board before you cut vegetables on raw vegetables on it. It's just not happening. So that's why they clean. But another reason is for their mental space. There are great stories from chef narratives about, you know, Michael Ruman in his book, The Making of a Chef, he talks about one of his fellow students who was just really, really falling behind in his ability to, to, to get the food out in the, the term that chefs use is in the weeds, right? Or in French, dans la merde. And the chef instructor came by that student and he says, I'm going to show you why you're falling behind. And he put his palm down on the student's cutting board, which was littered with onion skins and meat juices and, and, and scraps of vegetables and plastic that was, you know, paper towels and he picks his palm up and puts it in the student's face with all of that detritus on his palm. And he says, look at it. Look at this. This is the inside of your brain right now. Work clean, right? Take a moment to breathe and wipe your station down. Literally, wipe your cutting board down. Get things organized. Once you do that, you'll be able to think straight. And I know in our world especially, there's this I don't know, this sort of countervailing contrarian notion that, oh, some of the most successful people have messy desks, right? You know, I don't know what they say, Albert Einstein. <laughs> Albert Einstein had a messy desk, you know? <laughs> what? Albert Einstein had a messy desk and look how brilliant he was. It didn't affect him. And, you know, my, of course, jocular response to that is, you know, you ain't Einstein. Like, for us, we do need clarity. Clarity helps in our physical spaces so we can have clarity in our mental spaces. And how have you applied this principle to your own work life? Like how do you clean regularly on your office job? I, it, it literally, like I said, it's a commitment to process. You commit to doing it as part of my daily me's. I clean my desk. You know, in my own house, we have two desks. My wife has a desk and I have a desk. And whenever I turn around, my wife is sitting at my desk 
and not her desk. Why do you think that is? It's clean. Because every day I make a commitment to cleaning that space. And when I come back over, sometimes I'm cleaning her stuff, her stuff off my desk. I love my wife. She's she's beautiful and brilliant. And she is Einstein in many ways. But um, you know what I'm saying? Like it creates an environment in which you can create. And then you also think about you think about your digital spaces too. Like you can regularly clean those out. Like once a week, I clean up my computer. Like I go through, delete files I haven't used anymore. I have like I do a backup of my hard drive, and that's a process I do once a week to keep that digital space clean for myself. Because that's where you do your best work, and everybody has that one space. And I will say this: like no human can possibly maintain an absolutely pristine environment everywhere at all times. That's not what being human is. And that's not what I'm advocating. And a lot of this minimalism, you know, the the minimalism fad that we've been going through, whether it's condoing or, or, or whatever, right? A lot of it in many ways presupposes that we're doing this stuff all the time. We are human beings. We inhale and we exhale. We squeeze and then we release. We're active and then we rest. We, we're working and then we're playing. And so you do have to understand yourself and the ways in which you compensate and decompensate for the things that take a lot of energy. So if you are focused a lot of energy in cleaning your workspace, you might not focus a lot of energy in, I don't know, cleaning your kitchen, right? The opposite of what a chef does. That there have to be places where we do let ourselves go. And that balance is different for everyone. Right, that's why chefs have messy offices, but pristine kitchens. Right? <laughs> some, of, some of them don't. There are some of them don't. Some do. <laughs> well, one of the most powerful principles that I got from this book was a chapter on making first moves. And it's this distinction between process and immersive time. And it seems like this, this is something that I, I think you like chefs were doing, but they didn't know they were doing it until you showed them that they were doing it. Oh my God. That, that, I'm so glad that you picked up on that because if you ask me what I learned from this, from doing this book, from writing this book, that was the big takeaway for me. And it runs, flies in the face of almost every personal organization book that I've ever read. You know, Stephen Covey, in many ways, the guru of principled personal organization, has this story about going in front of a bunch of students and he has this big glass jar and then a, a box of rocks. And he takes each rock and he puts it in the glass jar till they're poking out the top of the glass jar. And he, and he asks the students, can I get in any more? You know, any, any more of these? And they say, no, he says, is, is the jar full? And they say, yes, it's full. And then he takes a box of pebbles out from under the desk and then pours the pebbles in between the rocks till the pebbles come up to the top of the jar. And he says, okay, now is the jar full? And the students say, yes. And then he takes a box of sand and he pours the sand and the sand goes in between the spaces between the rocks and the pebbles. And he says, okay, now is it full? And the students say, yes, it's full. And then he takes a jug of water and he pours the water in the sand in between the pebbles and the rocks. And so he's, when he's done with his exercise, he says, okay, what was the point? What was the point of that? And one student raises uh, her hand and says, the point is you can always fit more in. And he says, no, no, 
The point is, if I didn't put the big rocks in first, how was I going to get the rest of this stuff in? Oh, right. So that is the big realization that Covey brought to personal organization is that the big things, the most important things, the things that take the most time, those are the things you should be doing first. He even wrote a book called First Things First. But my friend, chefs don't work like that. They can't because what that ideal of first things first, big rocks first, doesn't take into account is how time actually works and how work actually works in time. That there are two different kinds of work. The work that you do with your hands on, which I'd call immersive work, right? Stuff that needs your hands, your eyes, your, your senses. And then hands off work, which I'll call process work. Things that you might need to start, <clears throat> but you don't need to be around while they happen. Your hands don't need to be on it. The great example that I love to use from the professional kitchen, actually from the, from the learning kitchens of the CIA, the Culinary Institute, is the student who's thinking, oh my God, I, I've got to do the most difficult thing first, the worst, do the worst first, right? So let me do all these vegetable cuts. And it's going to take me hours to do these vegetable cuts. And then the student turns around and realizes that they didn't turn the oven on and the oven is not warm. And so they can't cook the food. They're going to run behind because what they should have done instead of doing the worst first is they should have seen what process items they can take care of very quickly or start, what things they can start so that then they can turn their attention to the more immersive tasks. And so there's literally two kinds of time for a chef. There's hands-on time and hands-off time. And those things are always happening together, process time and immersive time. So when we are in our offices and we are immersed, I mean, hey, I mean, just even me getting booked on your podcast, right? I'm in a very immersive time in my own career. So I, I took a long time answering emails because I wasn't popping up for process time because I'm on a book deadline. And that's a choice I make. But the choice you make when you do that is you create delays for other people. So one of the things we can do, you know, while before we start that long email or report we need to, to write, we can just pop up for a few minutes and say, okay, who's waiting on me? Who needs a yes or a no from me, a quick thing from me, in order that the work, the other work that I don't have to put my hands on can get done or their work can get done? And that's often where a lot of waste comes in in corporate America because you have assistants and uh, middle managers waiting on upper level managers to give them a yes or a no or to read an email or something so they can get going. And so things just wait and wait and wait and wait. And that's where corporate waste really comes in. And that also is a big difference between corporate managers and chefs. I find that there is a certain level of respect that a chef has for his cooks or her cooks that in many ways does not exist in corporate America, where we treat a hierarchy and job titles as an entitlement rather than looking at ourselves as responsible for the efficiency and the success of the people who work beneath us.
One thing that's tricky though is figuring out what is the difference between process and immersive. Because some people might be like, well, this could be process or no, actually this is immersive. But I mean, what are some examples of some process work? I mean, would it be just be like answering quick emails that are like that just require yes, no? Yes. Okay. Uh, yes or no answers, quick responses, you know, quick readings of things, making a phone call to book an appointment or something like that. And you can't get all, you know, if you strung a whole bunch of little process things together, it does become an immer- immersive time. So what I do is I schedule buckets of process work in between my immersive time. So as a professor, I have a syllabus to write, but before I do that, I'm going to call the plumber and I'm going to ask my wife this question that I needed to ask her. And then I'm going to go in and I'm going to try to stay as much as I can in that document that I'm writing and not check Twitter too much. And I know afterwards that even though all these emails are coming in, I know that there's a place for them. Think about this. I'm less likely to be distracted by incoming communications if I know that in one hour I'm going to have a, a chance to take care of them. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. So yeah, again, you're going to put this on the calendar. You might, you might have block off 30 minutes at the beginning of your day for, I don't know, you can call it admin. Check your yeah, email. I, I call process, right? right. I, or you, you call, call it process. It admin. Right, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And another principle I thought was really incisive too that I didn't think about, but like chefs had to figure out and think about is figuring out what, like prioritizing tasks based on what can get finished or not. What does that look like? And why do chefs have to think about that? Well, it's all about cultivating a delivery mentality. There is a great tension between perfection and delivery. And I know that you've experienced times and projects in your life where it's just not there yet and yet the deadline is bearing down. And so it really becomes a trade-off of, you know, how much can I put into this before I really have to let it go? The story that I like to tell, really, it's more a quote from Lauren Michaels, you know, the founder of and the producer of Saturday Night Live going on, you know, upwards to 50 years now. He says, we don't go on. We don't go live, you know, because we're ready. We go live because it's 1130. Right. There's a certain point where the discussion has to stop and we have to think about delivering. And and the greatest chefs know, like Thomas Keller, right? The greatest chefs know is that you need deadlines and you need to deliver so that you can get the feedback to make whatever you're doing better. So, you, you know, there are many artist types, you know, especially I teach at an art school where people will just hold on to stuff. It's not ready. It's not ready. It's not ready. And then they never deliver. And then that's that becomes a legacy of failure because they're afraid of criticism. They're afraid of feedback. And what I try to get my students to do is to create with a sense of urgency. You know, every day you're going to start writing a song and every day you're going to finish writing a song. That's, you know, it's it's a habit to get into. We have to start you know, there's this sense that chefs are artists. We we cultivate that in our media, and but really, a, a true chef is a craft craftsperson first. And so, a chef practices her craft, and the art comes from the religious, relentless practice, efficient practice of that craft. 
that is the space where true artistry is born. It's not born in a moment of inspiration, right? That just compels you to dive into your work and you come out five hours later or five days later with something brilliant. No, it, it, it happens in the drudgery and the, and the monotony of, of the everyday practice of the craft. So when people watch these chef shows, it looks like it's crazy in there. And as you said, it might look crazy, but there's they got the, the chefs have the mise en place in place. So there's like this eye of the storm. So like you make this case that chefs actually slow down so they can speed up. But like, why does it look like they're running around? There's Gordon Ramsay yelling at people. Is, is mise en place going on there? We just don't know it. Well, I think there you're describing a whole bunch of different kinds of situations, right? So let's take um, let's take a, a a chopped, right, where you know you have four contestants all competing with each other and running against the clock. Often, you find a lot of the mistakes happen when cooks do not slow down to speed up, right? They're doing things; they're getting panicked; they're forgetting things. Working slowly and deliberately is always going to trump working super fast and thoughtlessly and messily. So, you know, watch, watch chop with that eye, with an eye towards who has good mise en place and who doesn't. And often it's the mise en place that goes hand in hand with the craft and the skill because those skills are developed hand in hand. Then, you know, when we're talking about like a Robert Irvine or a Gordon Ramsay, the, the, you know, the chefs who come in and, and seem to be yelling, I think a lot of First of all, yelling culture in kitchens has definitely subsided over the past few decades as the window towards that world has been exposed. But I also think that there is something about the environment of the kitchen that that in many sometimes requires the raised voice, which is not always an angry voice, but it also requires, I, I suppose, you know, I had somebody who used to call it the Saturn teacher, the teacher who teaches through difficulty, Right. And that cooks sometimes teach through a bit of sarcasm, a bit of, you know, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? Think about what you're doing. Stop, right? How is that going to work? What, you know, how is deviating from the process I gave you? It's very simple, right? How is deviating from that process going to help you and help me? You're killing our service right now. So I think that Chefs can be very tough teachers, but I also think that, that they teach toughness and that sometimes the price for being able to learn toughness is to have a tough teacher. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Well, let's kind of continue on this idea of communication because in the corporate world, that's where a lot of inefficiencies are. Emails, okay, it's on, sometimes on Slack. Did you get my phone call? Did you get the memo? Do, you, what, do people still fax? Maybe. But there's, there's multiple streams of communication going on. Yep. You can't have that in the kitchen. Like Everyone's got to be in the same stream. So how do chefs manage communication in the kitchen so that everyone knows what's going on? Well, the system that it, the system is called call and callback. You know, you've heard it if you've ever seen a movie or a clip of a professional kitchen. You know, the chef will act as, in many ways, as expediter, meaning the person who calls out the orders as they come in. And the chef actually is the traffic cop. He directs the flow of work in the kitchen. So, an order will come in from the dining room and the chef will call out to the line cooks, the, the, the people who actually make the food, two lamb, medium rare, two salads, and one filet. 
And so the grill person will have to call back. Yes, chef, two lamb medium rare, one filet. And then the guard manger will say, two, yes, chef, two salads. And there are two parts of that communication. The first is the call back, letting the chef know that they've received that information. And it also puts it in their own mind because they have to remember that stuff. But also, yes, chef, right? And that isn't just about subordinating yourself to someone. It's actually about what the chef owes you, right? Because what the chef is going to do that your corporate boss won't always do, and I'll give you a good example of this, is protect you from too much work. The chef is not going to let the grill get flooded, swamped, right? Or slammed. They're going to pace the orders so that the cooks can do their job and deliver. And what I have found in many bad companies or poorly run companies that I, in which I have worked is that you will have a senior manager who goes into a meeting with the president of the company and there's some new directive that comes down for a good reason or maybe it's just a, a thought you know, that the CEO had. And then the senior manager goes to the middle manager and says, okay, well, everybody needs to drop what they're doing and do this. And you say to your boss, well, I don't understand. You wanted me to finish this thing, but now you want me to drop it and do this. I can't deliver both of these in time. Well, nope, sorry, got to do it. We all got to hunker down around here. We all got to put in more hours around here. You see, you see the insanity of that is that there is a certain in good managers um, both in the kitchen and in the professional office, there is a sense of responsibility downward that you do have to protect and respect the things that make the people who work for you efficient and inefficient. And in corporations, a lot of that time, it's about whim and whimsy and doing things because the boss just told you to do them and there's no pushback on it. It's just like the employees are just this endless well into which management can dip. And it's infuriating. And I, I didn't really see another way until I saw the professional kitchen. Because a chef can't play magical thinking with her own time. And so she can't do that with her cooks either. Because she knows. She knows that time doesn't work like that. It's not a bottomless pit. Right? It's not an endless you know, well in which there's no bottom. There is going to be a bottom. And I think that's one of the, the great hidden things, uh, hidden blessings of mise en place. Well, it sounds like, yeah, chefs just squared the circle with, you know, because like, yeah, like you said, a lot of people don't realize when they're managing like a chef, they're, they're, they have two people they're taking care of. They got the customer they got to take care of. But like the customer interests sometimes conflict with the worker's interest. But the chefs have to figure out how to balance those, those two competing interests so that everyone has an enjoyable evening and work gets done. Yeah, and that's why the chef gets the big bucks. It's not to, you know, just dump work on folks. You really do. The respect goes both ways. I often, one of the things, one of the conceits of the modern office that I find to be the most abhorrent is this idea 
that we're all family. You'll hear this in a lot of companies. We're all family right. here, right? Please call me Bob, right? Like, no, 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 no. Don't pretend that it's a family. Don't pretend that there's not a hierarchy. Don't pretend that you're one of us. You're not, right? You're actually a chef and you have to act like one. And that not only means that only means that you have the responsibility to meet out work, but it also means you have the responsibility to protect uh, the growth and and the mise on the individual mise en place of your workers, and to encourage that. And then also, I mean, as you said earlier, this idea of presence of mise en place, like for the chef to be able to know whether the grill line is getting slammed, like he has to be aware, but also he has to be aware, like, are we running out of ingredients? Do we need to prep more stuff for that? Like, so how do they, is that just something that comes with practice? They develop that ability to know what's going on in all parts of the kitchen? You know, there's a line from Bill Murray's movie, uh, Groundhog Day, you know, where he said, you know, maybe God, you know, maybe God isn't omniscient. Maybe he's just been around so long that he just knows everything. You know, he's, he's, you know, learned everybody's names and knows how everything works. Right. So a chef is just a a cook who's been around for a long, long time and has developed some sensory and sometimes extrasensory things. So yeah, you know, there is, there is a point where mastery sets in and maybe that list is in your head. Because it's just been in there day after day after day after day. But what gets you to that point are the good habits of mise en place, the good habits of the checklist and the calendar, the good habits of cleaning as you go, the good habits of starting immediately, the good habits of finishing. All of those things go into that mastery. Well, what's amazing with you've taken all this stuff and you do this at the end of the book, you've actually created like an organizational system. You become like a Stephen Covey or a David Allen and you've created like, and, it, and it's, I mean, I, I found it really useful. I mean, I've already been using some of these principles, but like big picture, like what does it involve? Just sort of daily planning and clean, like just putting these things we've been talking about into practice. Yeah. I mean, for me, it shakes out as an unshakable daily commitment, 30 minutes a day to cleaning my station, to, to whether that station is my actual desktop or my computer or my phone, right? That things are going to get taken care of. And, you know, actually just a little plug, you know, one of the, one of the tools that I found really, really helpful lately for managing email is this new service called Hey, H-E-Y.com. Yeah. I saw your email and I was like, what is this? I checked it out. Oh, it looked God. pretty cool. Yeah. It's so, um, it, it is, it comes the closest I've seen to getting you to a place of cleanliness with your inbox situation. It still takes maintenance. There's no algorithm that's going to do it for you. That's why a lot of these sort of calendar things, like, you know, that your calendar will schedule your lunchtime for you. Like, give me a break. AI is not going to do it. It's just not. You have to do it. You are the one who has to clean every day. You have to clean your station. You have to plan your life. You have to make the choices. Do I do this today or do I not do this today? It doesn't work any other way. You, you can use tools. There are always tools that will help us do that. But ultimately, you're the person who has to do it. So the way that it shows up for me is I sit down at my desk and I go through, I clean all my tools you know, take the receipts out of my wallet, put them in the inbox, take stuff out of my bag that I had for the day, put it in the inbox. But, you know, so that 
I'm not looking for stuff all day long. Everything's in one place. And then I take the stuff out of my inbox and put it where it's supposed to go. I look at my calendar. I make sure that I don't have too much to do that day. I make sure that the things I want to do are squared with my schedule. And everything that I feel like I can't do today, I move to the next day or a few days after. Just because you got to do it. Otherwise, you're going to let your calendar make that choice for you. Well, Dan, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? You can go to workclean.com, all one word, W-O-R-K-C-L-E-A-N.com or alternately everything.place. And uh, there's more information about the book and the system there. All right. Well, Dan Charnas, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Oh, pleasure here. My guest there is Dan Charnas. He's the author of the book, Everything in Its Place. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at his website, workclean.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash workclean. You can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanless.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written over the years about pretty much anything you can think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member you would think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only listen to the AWIM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.